So, I was raised fundamentalist Christian till I was about 20. When I couldn't reconcile my love of science and confusion over God, I walked away. Then I reached my 30s and I realized that I hadn't got God off my mind, and it was time to deconstruct my faith. Join me, Sam Morse, every week on my podcast, Out of Eden, as I wander the no-man's land of agnostic uncertainty and finally try to figure out what I believe in. This podcast is an attempt to document my journey into deconstruction starting on day one. You can find the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And please visit the show website at outofedenpod.com. I hope you join me along the journey. I believe faith and wisdom are tied together with one another. That doesn't mean you have to be a person of faith in order to be happy. I, I think there are lots and lots of good people in the world who are not people of faith. But, I, but for at least for me, and for what I believe God intended us for, how we're created, faith that this world has a meaning, a purpose, and that we are here for a reason, I think that is a bedrock of wisdom. You are my rescue When I sink down You want the waves to pull me out My lifeline You are my anchor My steadfast You hold me till the storm has passed me by Hello everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Can I Say This at Church podcast. Today's interview is with someone of a different faith, which I find exciting and enticing, and I think if there's anything that I could do better, and anything that I have learned from doing this show, it is to engage those of other faiths that no one really has a stronghold on 100% clarity what is true, and that there's so much that we can learn from each other, and that is the same interfaith as it is intrafaith, and by that I mean I can learn from a Lutheran, or learn from a Presbyterian, or learn from a Catholic, just as much as I can learn someone that follows from Judaism or Buddhism. Um, Before we get started, thank you to those that have rated the show on iTunes. Please continue to do so. Those, uh, we've had a few of the, the feedback has been tremendous, especially from those of you in other countries. I love seeing how the show is impacting you and how it's challenging you as it is me. Please consider going to patreon.com slash can I say this at church or to the website and you'll find a link there and support the show. As little as a dollar a month goes way further than you believe that it would. Enough about that. Today's guest is Rabbi Evan Moffick. He, at age 30, became one of the youngest people to become the lead rabbi of Congregation Solel in Chicago. He regularly appears on many news medias. Uh, he's a commentator on Israel and both on political and social events. He comes with a lot of knowledge and with a lot of humility. Today's conversation is centered around the concept of the happiness prayer, which is based on ancient Jewish texts. And so we don't ever list those in the podcast. And so I would like to list those here and then we will get on into it. So those are 10 basic things that, that as we pray, we should keep in mind. And that is how we give honor to those who gave us life, being kind, 
continual learning, inviting others into our life, that we make it a point to be there when others need us. We celebrate the good times, and I think that's key. We always bypass that. We, we move on too quickly. Uh, we also lament and move on too quickly. Support yourself and others during times of loss. We need to pray with intention, learn to forgive, and look inside and commit. And so I really hope that you enjoyed today's conversation. I know I did. Here we go. You are my rescue. You are my rescue. Rabbi Moffick, thank you so much for taking the time to come onto the Can I Say This at Church podcast. I am excited for today's conversation, and I'm excited for the topic specifically about prayer. What is a bit of your background, sort of your upbringing, and then how has that impacted the way that you do ministry today? Thanks, Seth. It's an honor to be on on, on your podcast and to talk with you, and uh, I've enjoyed our conversation so far. But my background is uh, I grew up in Houston, Texas, actually, and in a fairly not very active Jewish home. I mean, we belonged to a synagogue. Uh, I actually ended up going to a Jewish day school more as a, just because it was the best school in the area, uh, then my parents had a, a, a very strong commitment to uh, the synagogue, but it ended up that I went to the Jewish day school, and it was just a wonderful experience, and I grew up with rabbis that I really looked up to, and I saw them as, as role models of what a religious leader could be. And so the, the synagogue where I grew up with, the, 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 the prayer was a very formal, actually, uh, probably the closest parallel would be almost like to an Episcopal or an Anglican church in the Protestant tradition. So it was more formal prayer, more than I do today, but it did give me a sense of kind of the power and majesty of prayer, and a sense that in certain settings we can connect with God more closely, and that there was a sense of a, of a transcendent, awesome God. I, I, I still distinctly remember parts of that religious service uh, that uh, really moved and inspired me. So I grew up with a, a model of more formal prayer, kind of high church. Um, and even though some people have rebelled against that, a lot of that power and grandeur of it have stayed with me. So I grew up mostly as Baptist, and we and things were not very liturgical, for lack of a better word. And I have recently fallen in love with just the liturgy of some of the older prayers. And not that I know Latin, nor that nor do I have the time to learn it. But I have fallen in love with the the discipline that it takes to take your time and think about what you're saying. I find so often when I pray, it's extremely selfish. It's, I need this, I need this. Let's figure out how to get me this. This will make my life better. Um, which I think yeah. leads uh, leads to a bad, a bad ex- outcome and expectation, a bad binary of what prayer should be. Yes. Yes. There's a power in the tradition. There's a power in the liturgy. Now, it shouldn't be everything. There's time for personal prayer and introspection, but the liturgy is, in a way, time-tested thousands of years. And there's a, there's a connection that we can make to the liturgy that brings us out of ourselves. And so now you are, you are the lead rabbi of a congregation in Chicago, correct? Yeah, yes. Is there, and, and this is where I'm going to show my ignorance, is there a, a large Jewish following in Chicago? Yes. Yes, uh, we're one of the biggest Jewish communities in the country. So um, the biggest Jewish community is in New York City, and 
surrounding environments. Uh, and that's been true for since Jews came to America, essentially, because most were immigrants and they came right by the Statue of Liberty and many ended up staying in New York City. Uh, so New York City is the largest population. Los Angeles is the second largest. Hmm. Um, and I believe Chicago, I think we're the third. It might be South Florida. Uh, uh, South Florida has a, a tremendously large Jewish population, but Chicago is one of the largest. Uh, Jews have tended to be uh, in big cities. I mean, there are certainly uh, rural Jewish populations. In fact, when I was a, a rabbi, I served a, uh, a student. I served a congregation in sort of rural Louisiana. So there are some smaller Jewish communities, but the, the bulk are in the big cities. I'm just curious, before we get into the, the conversation of prayer, why do you think that is? There's got to be some reasoning behind that. It's very, well, I think part of it is, is it's natural for immigrant groups that when you immigrate, you tend to go and be around people like you. And so the major, and, and when immigrants came, the jobs, you know, that immigrants could get were in the big cities. You know, they were the, the low paying uh, jobs, the, 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 the tradesmen and the factory workers. And so I think it was kind of a combination of economics that when immigrants came, the only jobs they could get were jobs that were generally in big cities. And then when other immigrants came, they wanted to be around people they knew and that were like them. So they stayed in the big cities. Yeah. Uh, and, and so it was kind of a phenomenon. And, and that's true with Irish, uh, uh, with Italian. I mean, not as much sort of as it's changing as the Jewish community, the immigrant experience is sort of fading. You know, it's really more towards the beginning of the 20th century. That kind of focus on the cities um, diminishes a little bit, but it was all of those various factors kind of combined to uh, to bring Jews towards more urban areas. And, and it makes sense. Everyone wants to feel like they can more easily fit in. And in, in, in where they live, it's just it's just easier. So, um, getting to your right. book, so I have enjoyed very much your book. I find that I don't dwell enough on prayer, and usually, as as I alluded to a minute ago, usually when I pray, it's it's for selfish reasons because I, I find myself busy. And in a moment of honesty, that sounds extremely bad, but okay, that's fine. So I, the title I, of the book is is the Happiness Prayer: uh, Ancient Jewish Wisdom for the Best Way to Live Today, and and so there's a part of me that when I hear that title, I, I understand we're going to talk about something ancient, which extremely old, so there's going to be wisdom involved. But what is the happiness prayer? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a prayer uh, in the sense that we say it during a worship service. But it's not a prayer in the traditional sense uh, of it being an import, uh, 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 asking God for something. So... Let me, let, let me take a step back and sort of talk about the Jewish understanding of prayer. So Jewish prayer is very liturgical, and, and one could say, and I'm not using this in a negative tone at all, it, it's more legalistic in the sense that there are certain prayers that you're supposed to say, certain texts that come from the book of Psalms, that come from other uh, books of the Bible, and that come from the Talmud, which is an ancient Jewish sort of wisdom and legal text. And the people who put together the Jewish liturgy, they were mainly sages, they chose different parts of each of these books that Jews should say at each worship service. And so one of, one of the texts that they chose 
is what I call the happiness prayer. Now, it's not technically called the happiness prayer. That was my kind of reading of it. It doesn't really have a technical name. Um, a lot of people know it by the first Hebrew words, which are Elu Javarim. But this is a text that comes from the Talmud, and it's said every morning in a traditional Jewish worship service. It's read every morning. And it's, it says these are the actions whose uh, worth can be measured. And they lead to a good life here and in the afterlife. And... Uh, and, and they're honoring father and mother, acts of love and kindness, diligent pursuit of knowledge and wisdom, hospitality to wayfarers, visiting the sick, celebrating with bride and groom, and there's a couple couple more. There are 10 of them. And I believe that, in a way, because they are included in a Jewish worship service, they constitute a prayer, even though by the... If we want to technically define prayer as asking God for something or invoking God, uh, to achieve something, it doesn't fit that category. Does that make sense? It does. So I want to I want to lean into some of those, but before I do, as I was reading your book, and I've also read another book this year, and the two seem to overlap. I, I can't I can't think that you're not familiar with the work of Diana Butler Bass. And I read a book that sure. she wrote on gratitude, and there seems to be a big correlation between what she was saying from a perspective of of being grateful but not in a subservient way, not in a quid pro quo, not in a, I did this for you, so now you owe me something. Uh, but I, to turn that on its head, that, you know, in God is an abundance of gracefulness, an abundance of, of wealth, of, of open arms, and just come and take, come and, come and be a part of me, and, and that there is no expectation there uh, as, as we, as, as followers of whatever our religion is, um, that you now owe me something, you know, and, and I, I read a lot of that gratefulness and a lot of that, that same mentality in this, in your book and in this prayer. So I'm curious if you can talk a bit about why you think that is, or, or kind of what that, what that underlying thread is. I think that's a great observation. Well, I think gratitude is a core part of happiness. There, um, it, it, because in a way, it's almost a psychological effect. When we focus on what we have rather than what we don't have, when we desire, um, we are just naturally more satisfied because we have what we need, you know. And and the natural human inclination, in many ways, is to always want more, more, more. Especially in our consumer culture. I mean, a consumer culture, which is, you know, created the iPhone and, and has done wonders for the world, and it's it's wonderful but it also relies on cultivating human desire. And so, uh, which makes us unhappy uh, until we get the next thing we want. So gratitude refocuses us on what we already have. Now, I see Diane uh, Butler Bass's point, which is very interesting, that gratitude shouldn't be about getting something out of it. It should be a kind of senseless gratitude, uh, that we're simply grateful, not so that we feel happier, but because because we have what we need. Um, this, I, I think she also points to a broader problem with both prayer and the search for happiness. One of the things I've talked about with happiness is when we actually go after happiness, we don't achieve it. You know, it's like um, happiness is almost a byproduct of doing certain things well. Uh, so and I think gratitude, we feel most grateful 
when we don't want to get something out of being grateful. Uh, it's, it's one of the paradoxes of, 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 of living. Um, so I think she points that out really well. So as a Christian, why is my why should one of my chief concerns be, um, or, or especially in the Jewish faith, why should, why should I be concerned with being happiness? Do I have any claim to being happy? Ah, it's a great question. Well, I believe passionately that God desires us to be happy, that, that God, we are created to find meaning and fulfillment in life, that life isn't about suffering. Uh, although suffering is a part of life. We all, tragedy is part of life. We live, we die, people we love die, but that God created us as an act of benevolence, and we can find true meaning and purpose uh, in the world. Um, it's not happiness in the sense of pleasure, although pleasure is fine, there's, you know, uh, uh, in, in, in appropriate boundaries, but it's happiness in the sense that we are meeting our purpose as creations of God. Um, we use our brain, we express our faith, uh, and, and I, I, I think the evidence is really there. I mean, prayer makes us happier. When we pray and we feel a sense of gratitude, we are more satisfied human beings, and we achieve more. We, we, we are able to share our faith in, in, in deeper ways. Uh, uh, so I really believe that God created us in this way to find happiness through the right pursuit of happiness. There's a lot of wrong pursuits of happiness. Uh, uh, there's happiness, where, which is hedonism. Uh, there's happiness where it's just purely self-gratification. That's the wrong kind of happiness. I think God designed us for true happiness, and that's a lot of what our prayers, our texts, our traditions are meant to guide us towards. Um, and I happen to think that sometimes the great scholars of religion, the theologians, they may not have been aware that people were seeking happiness. I mean, life was a lot more difficult a hundred years ago, even two hundred years ago. You know, so the notion of searching for happiness, where we could have a lot of our basic needs met, that didn't occur to people. On, I mean, it occurred to a few, but it wasn't a widespread possibility a hundred, a thousand years ago. But I think now, as we live in the wealthiest time in human history, a lot of our basic needs can be fulfilled, uh, uh, that we can, in a way, draw on some of the deeper parts of our faith tradition to search for happiness. And I think, I, I think our text indicates that God wants us to do so. I mean, over and over in the book of Psalms, there's a word that appears called asher, an asheray, which literally means happy, fulfilled. You keep asking why this place is full of people so unsatisfied With everything they find here But there's no place like home And this is not where you belong To draw on, you know, past knowledge, what then... Besides, you know, the scriptures, how can we seek out those that have, well, I want to say this right. So when I think about wisdom, and so I am a middle-aged American, and I have kids that are under 10, and I am constantly reminded each day how bad of a dad I am, uh, and I screw up mostly with my son. And so as we're seeking to have a life, my son's my oldest, and so as we're seeking to have a life that we can that we can learn 
to be grateful and learn from our, you know, from our parents and from and from everything else. What are what is the difference? But how do I get wisdom without screwing up first? Well, it's 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 a lifelong quest. Um, I think we need to have teachers that we trust. I think faith is a basic part of it. I really, and, and this is where I may differ from psychologists who teach at universities where faith isn't a core part of their mission and their identity as a person. I believe faith and wisdom are tied together with one another. That doesn't mean you have to be a person of faith in order to be happy. I, I think there are lots and lots of good people in the world who are not people of faith. But for at least for me, and for what I believe God intended us for, how we're created, faith that this world has a meaning, a purpose, and that we are here for a reason, I think that is a bedrock of wisdom. So we have to start with a sense of faith. And faith also gives us permission. We're not going to be perfect. In fact, perfection isn't a real idea. Perfection is, it's almost a, it's a Greek concept of, of there being this perfect ideal world. I, I, I don't think that perfection, there's such, I mean, God is perfect, but I don't think that there's a, a, a human sense of perfection. So I think we have to start with faith. And then we have to have teachers that we trust and that are seeped in tradition and that can help guide us through faith. Um, and that's what our wisdom traditions are there for. I mean, the fact that this is an ancient prayer, an ancient text, to me, gives it a certain kind of legitimacy. Not that there's, not that some of the new insights in positive psychology and in research are uncovering enormously important things. But in many ways, I believe the ancients got a lot of things right. So seeping ourselves in ancient texts and traditions that have had time-tested ways of guiding people towards a more meaningful life, that to me is a great source of wisdom. Uh, so I think being rooted in faith and being rooted in certain traditions and texts gives us a leg up. Uh, and then we just have to have to keep keep getting through the failures because, you know, I'm a dad too, of two young kids and, and I mess up all the time. Uh, but uh, I, I, I try to really stay true to my purpose and stay true to, to the values that I know ultimately make for a more meaningful life. I am curious what positive psychology is, but before that, you said something that I didn't write this question down, but I am, I, I now want to know more about that. So if we think about there's wisdom in, in other ancient texts, as a Christian or as a Jew, what can we take as truth from sacred texts that are not of our same faith tradition? Or, or should we even involve ourselves in that? Yeah, I think that is, a, that is a difficult question. And I think people of goodwill will come to, to different answers uh, of, to, uh, for that question. It kind of depends on one's own uh, personal bent. This is a very important question. Should we consult texts that aren't our own tradition? I believe the answer is yes. And I think some people, there are some Christians who I'm close with who are on the more evangelical side, and there is a passionate belief that every answer um, to all of life's questions can be found in the New Testament. Um, and I respect that point of view of faith, and I think it's powerful for a lot of people. But I think that God gave us so many sources of wisdom. Um, there's a beautiful Jewish legend that says, it's asked the question, how is God different from a coin maker? Uh, a coin maker creates something, 
And, and the, the answer is when a coin maker mints coins, they all come out the same. But when God created human beings, we all came out differently. And so I think that there is a beauty in a, in a divine purpose in having different people and different faiths. Um, so that's why I think uh, it's good to study ancient texts. Now, we should do so with um, a mind towards, um, uh, towards true fulfillment, towards um, having a kind of uh, understanding that we cannot really know fully a tradition when we are uh, not of it. There, there is a, a filter that we need. So when I go, let's say I'm going to go and look at parts of the New Testament, which isn't my Bible, but it's, it's an important document. I would like to talk with the pastor before I go in and believe that, you know, I can glean necessary wisdom. I think in many ways we need guides who can help us through that. That guide could be a good book by a trusted author. Uh, it could be a, a pastor. But we, in some ways in America, this is part of our tradition that we kind of believe we can um, take the best parts of every single religious tradition and kind of create our own. Um, this was a sociological phenomenon that, that, that people wrote about in the 80s and 90s. But I don't think that's true. I think each religion has a kind of authenticity on its own, and we can learn from other religions, but we should learn thoughtfully and with the right guides. Does that make sense? It does. It does. No, And I find that encouraging. I spoke with, um, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Alexander Shia, and he said he said stuff similar that, you know, I can spend time with Buddhists or spend time with Brahmins and learn from the way that they interact with creation and with and with, you know, the divine and then take the best parts of that and still still worship Jesus, but just in a different way. Um, and, and I'm reminded in, yeah. in a badly a badly placed metaphor of, of the term ecumenism, um, where you know the each if we, if we look as, at, at each person as a different part of the body of the church, you know, um, that, that fundamentalists or evangelicals or Jewish or ever, everyone has a role to play. But that's hard to ride that line between that and syncretism. Which it is. It's so I don't right. know. It's a hard. It's a hard line to ride. Um, how? So I don't often read a theology book and learn about the Cubs. And so I, I wanted to end on two questions because I know your your time is running short, and and uh, and I want to be respectful yeah. of that. So most of the time when people talk about prayer and the Cubs uh, or prayer and the Red Sox or anything else, it's mostly just to overcome a curse. And so can you talk a bit about where you were going at when you when you talk about the Cubs and and the way. That 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 impacts uh, a happiness prayer or or the way that we go about praying. Uh, an interesting question. So I believed. So you know, it was kind of tongue in cheek in a way to use the Cubs example, but part of it was I. First of all, religion and baseball people people have a deep faith in their teams and in, and in the people uh, and and uh, especially in Chicago. Yep. It's, it's, Baseball's it's, almost it's, a religion. <laughs> Yeah, so that was part of it. But I also looked at the way the Cubs had um, had uh, had played and their strategy as. Uh, yeah. You guys never come back. You yeah. Gotta exit oh, okay. Sorry about that. No problem. Yeah. Sorry about that. So um, the their strategy 
was very simple and disciplined. They did a lot of little things well. And I think that that's ultimately what a happy life is in a life of faith. It's not about the grand experiences. You know, you think about it, people who, let's, let's talk about a, a born-again experience or people have, a, have an amazing uh, religious experience, and they suddenly say, I'm going to go to church now all the time. And then they come for like one or two. I'm sure this is a phenomenon in the church. Mm-hmm. They come for a couple of times, and then life gets back to normal, right? And they don't go at all. There's probably lots and lots of examples of that. And the same is true in Judaism. Um, versus somebody who commits to a path of life, and they do it simply and diligently and consistently. And that ultimately, I believe, is what makes for a happier life and a, and a, and a more honest, faithful life. It's the little things that we do well uh, over and over again. And so that's kind of, and, and that is how the Cubs won, ultimately, is they, they developed this strategy where they, they didn't look for the superstar sluggers. Uh, they weren't all about the, 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 the best shortstop and first baseman. They were, what are the things that we can do well and consistently? So to me, it was just a great model for how a life of faith uh, can work and evolve. My final question, which which will lead us hopefully to the end, is it, at least in the faith tradition that I was brought up in, when I hear honor, so you you write honor those who gave you life, and I hear that as honor your father and mother. Yeah. You talk about so the way I usually hear that is it's a command, like no, you will respect me, and I I I owe the authority here, and so what I say is what happens, and I'm sorry if you don't like it. Um, I don't know that. I believe that, but that's how I hear it often, and that's even honestly how it's portrayed in a lot of media or on a lot of television or in a lot of movies, uh, and, and it's used to a detrimental way. Like It usually causes some form of harm, and so I was hoping that you could talk a bit about you know, honor versus love as we think about our relationship with our parents or, or with, with you know, people beyond that, our grandparents or, or other people that, that somehow are giving a version of life to us. Wow, that, that's a great question. And a very interesting question. So I think sometimes people confuse um, respect with authority and being an authoritarian. So the truth is, yes, we do owe our parents a kind of honor and respect. And that that's part of, part of how God created us. God did create us with parents who gave us life and that life deserves that, that, that gift of life deserves a kind of honoring. Um, and yet there are also obligations on parents as well, uh, and that parents have an obligation in Judaism, uh, that they have an obligation to teach their children the tradition, they have an obligation to teach their children to trade, uh, and they have an obligation to teach their children how to survive in a way. Um, and so uh, parents and children both have responsibilities. Uh, and love, in Judaism, love is about actions. It's not as much of an emotion, although it is an emotion, but it's about the actions that we do that show that love. So love is certainly a part of it, but as anyone knows, if you're a pastor and just a human being in life, life is complicated. Sometimes uh, situations aren't as ideal as they should be, but even if the love bond between parents and children has diminished, you still owe your parents some sort of respect. Uh, and honor. And, and what that means uh, is different, right? It, it, it's not always a, 
it's not always a, a, a totally defined uh, way. But, you know, if you have a parent who's living on the street and you can help provide them shelter, even if they weren't the best parent, that's what you owe them is, is, is one example. And there are many others. But it, to me, it's not really about authority. It's about the kind of basic human respect for the gift of life. And I'd like to end with this question. If you could remake it, so you've, you've obviously gained wisdom. You were good at what you do. You have the, the benefit of, of a spouse that's also a, you know, a minister and a counselor. And so if you could take everything that you've learned, think about your, you know, the people that you, you were charged with, with shepherding, what would you remake about the happiness prayer? Is there anything that you would add or take away or, or nuance in a way that you haven't seen it done in the past? And with that in mind, thinking, you know, 400 years down the road, you know, someone's still going to have your book. And so if you could do it again and remake any portion of it, is there anything that you would tweak at all? Yes, actually, I, I would. Um, and this is somewhat counterintuitive to the, towards the beginning of our conversation where we were talking about prayer and prayer bringing us outside of ourselves, I would actually add a commandment or a part of the prayer that focuses more on our internal well-being. That when this prayer was written 2,000 years ago, the notion of an individual was not really... People were really defined by their groups and by their community, and everything was about your peoplehood, your, 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 your tribe. Um, and there's nothing about individual well-being about, uh, you know, that, that I think was not on the minds of the rabbis who wrote this prayer. So I believe that real happiness, real well-being requires some sort of self-care and, uh, and self-awareness. It could be journaling. It could be working out. It could be um, taking time uh, for, for ourselves in, in, in other ways. And I don't think that that's, that wasn't included at all in this prayer, and I would include it. Now, I think in our culture today, we tend to err more towards the self-centered side. So I think in many ways the, the Jewish tradition is, is a good counterweight towards that. But I think if I could rewrite an ideal template or prayer for happiness, it would include some measure of self-care. In closing, where would you direct people to, Rabbi, as as they want to engage in this work? And and I will say uh, to pray in a contemplative way, on in a purposeful way, is 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 harder than you would expect if you've never tried to do it. And so, oh, yeah. where would you point people to for for avenues to get involved? Uh, obviously, if, if you if you're listening to this and it and it sparks any anything in you that you feel any at all curious, I would recommend highly go and get the book. We have only scratched the surface in a few of these questions, and I, I have multiple more pages of questions that we'll, we'll, we won't answer today. So where would you point people to to either engage with you or engage in this kind of work? Well, they can certainly visit my website. It's, it's very simple. It's rabbi, R-A-P-B-I dot me, M-E, rabbi dot me. And uh, I'd be happy to, to engage, to you know, you can send me an email. I, I would love to be in touch. And um, visit a synagogue. Uh, read up on Judaism. There, there's a lot. Um, I really passionately believe that the more we can engage and learn about others, the deeper we can feel comfortable in our own faith. Uh, I think God, God made us to learn and to grow. Uh, and so that I would encourage uh, people to, to explore. Well, thank you again, Rabbi. Thanks, Seth.
great talking with you. Raise your hand if you feel like you do prayer and you understand prayer well. If you're like me, your hand is not raised. But I'm learning that prayer changes you. As I look into it and I research it and I prepare for other talks, there's something psychologically, physiologically internal that happens regardless of our faith, be us Jewish, Muslim, Christian, Buddhist, it doesn't matter. When we meditate, when we intentionally pray, it affects the way that we live and do life. And so if you take nothing else away from today, I hope that you hear that. Be intentional. Prayer can make us entirely more grateful, more humble, more patient. You know those Beatitudes? That prayer can help us do that better. Because when we pray, we tap into a part of ourselves that we don't normally listen to. I'm ever grateful to all the supporters of the show in any way that you do so. Thank you so much. You are the engine that drives the conversations that happen here on the Can I Say This at Church podcast. The music in today's episode was provided with permission from the band West of Here. They had an EP come out earlier this year. I like it. Something about it reminds me of anthem type rock and so i would encourage you to listen to that album uh get it if you like it's available at a lot of places noise trade west of and as well as the spotify playlist for can i say this at church we'll talk with you next week